0: Welcome to Songs We Hate To Love, your endless treasure trove of DIY MySpace ringtone hits. We are your hosts, Pat and Sean Kelly, twin brother music duo, songwriters, and DJs. And we've invited you here today on a journey through yet another guilty pleasure soundscape. So get out your shiny new point-and-shoot camera, upload that new dance craze to your mid-2000s YouTube account, and follow us past the point of no return. On today's episode, we are talking about the 2007 song, Crank That, in parentheses, "Soldier Boy, by the father of DIY internet artists, formerly known as Soldier Boy Tellem. This is a song that created a paradigm shift in the music industry, showing everyone what you could do with the power of the internet and shameless self-promotion. So much self-promotion. So, Sean, this song went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 on September 16th, 2007. And not because of some big record label creating and executing an expensive and well-planned marketing campaign. No, Sean. This was a 15-year-old Atlanta rapper who did everything himself. He promoted it himself, and he created a huge buzz and loyal fan base on the internet on his own. Just to help plan us in the timeline, when this song hit number one on the Hot 100, these were the top 10 songs on September 16, 2007. Obviously, crank that shoulder, boy. Number two was Stronger by Kanye West. Three, Big Girls Don't Cry by Fergie. Four, The Way I Are. By Timbaland featuring Carrie Hilson. Baby, working, Number five, Beautiful Girls by Sean Kingston. Number six, Bartender by T pain featuring Akon. Ooh, me, the- Seven, Hey There Delilah by Plain White Tees. Hey Eight, Rockstar by Nickelback. Nine, Make Me Better by Fabulous, featuring Neo. And number 10, shawty by Plies featuring T-Pain. Your man, girl, oh, I see what's going on here. There's two T-Pains in there. T-Pain shows up twice with Crank That at number one. So Snap Music taking up three of the top 10 spots. So this was the golden age of Crunk and Snap. And here's a quick clarification of the two genres, in case you have forgotten. They're mid-2000s Atlanta hip-hop genres. They overlapped a lot, but let's start with crunk. Here's a few examples of crunk. First up is Money in the Bank by Lil Scrappy featuring Young Buck. Money in the bank, yeah. the what you drink. I got money in the bank, the what you drink. I got money in the bank, the what you drink. I got money. Number two, Here's Goodies by Sierra featuring Petey Pablo. And, younger, younger, and number three, everybody's favorite, Get Low by Lil John and the East Side Boys featuring Yin Yang Twins. The window, the wow. And then there's snap music, which is sometimes referred to as ringtone rap. Here's a couple examples of that. First is Buy You a Drank, Shoddy Snappin' by T-Pain featuring Young Jock. And T-Pain is probably one of the most important snap artists. Brought auto-tune in as kind of a pop tool, and we've never really looked back since then. Another example of a snap song is the song Lean With It, Rock With It by Dem Franchise Boys, Peanut and Charlay. So the third example of a snap song, we don't need to play because that's the song we're talking about today. And that's Crank That Soldier Boy. It's a snap song mainly because, well, you know, it's got snaps in it. <laughs> it's got a lot of snapping in it. It's a simple production trick. We have that little background going into this pat what sticks out to you in the story behind crank that soldier boy let's put ourselves in the shoes of like a 14 15 year old and that's really where the story gets good is when you look at his experience with the music he was making as a teenager this is the story of internet self-promotion the kind that has become standard for anybody in the music industry right They tell you to promote your song every single day. If you have a new song, you're expected to promote it every single day online. They want you to be a personality. They want you to bring out yourself and shamelessly promote yourself as a character, as a person on the internet. That is the blueprint that he kind of created, quote-unquote, for everybody. And he lets us all know that he was an integral part of that. (laughs) He likes to let everybody know that the history books will look back and say, he's the one who started this. And guess what? The history books are saying that now. The cross-promotion part of it is really funny. He started on a website called SoundClick. And then, of course, he used MySpace and YouTube at the time. But SoundClick was basically SoundCloud, except you could just vote on songs and vote up songs. You'd upload your music, and then people would vote on it, and that would help get the songs to the top of the SoundClick website chart his first song that hit number one on the site which means that you load up the site and the first song on there is going to be soldier boy what do you think that song was called sean (laughs) i don't know what was it called it was called doo-doo head that's where you can see that he was just a kid who was trying to make music can we play a clip of doo-doo head i don't even know if it's available if you can find it If it is available, I'm going to play a clip of it right now. Here we go. It's so fun because this is the earlier days of, I wouldn't say it's the early days of the internet. It's the early days of the internet as we know it today in 2023. This is when YouTube is just getting off the ground. This is still the MySpace era, but we have a social media platform, right? MySpace is a pretty strong one. This is the early days of Facebook. It's kind of interesting because we're just starting to get into this weird cycle of social media that we're in in this current moment in Mm -hmm. 2023. So there were a few things that he did that I think are really funny, but also really smart. The first thing was that he would upload his song to LimeWire, which was an illegal file sharing platform back in that time. And he would falsely name his tracks after the most popular artists at the time and the songs at the time. So he would put up his own song, but say it was, you know, Michael Jackson beat it, or he would put up his own song and say it was Britney Spears. And so people would then download the song, listen to it, and they'd be like, this is not the song. This is some (laughs) kid in his bedroom. So he basically duped a bunch of people into listening to his music. He just tried to get his music out there, As far and wide as he could, Mm -hmm. no matter what. He didn't care if people didn't like him. And he even says it later on. He's like, I probably, you know, pissed off a lot of people. (laughs) The next thing that I thought was really funny was that he wrote his own Wikipedia page about how popular he was before he was popular.
1: That's so so good. So this is the early days of Wikipedia, too, right?
0: And so there were less regulations around like who could put stuff up. Like right now, he wouldn't be able to do that, but at that time he could. They, they check things pretty thoroughly on Wikipedia these days. But yeah. in the early days, it was like the Wild West. All of a sudden, you'd see some weird shit on Wikipedia, <laughs> and you'd be like, whoa, somebody should probably check that because yeah. that is uh, some definitely wrong information. I guess the thing that, that we can relate most to, because we were using this program at the same time, is that he created all of this using the demo pack of an unregistered copy of of FL Studios or Fruity Loops Studios. Fruity Loops is a beat making digital audio workstation or a DAW. And there were a lot of programs at that time. So we used to use Cool Edit Pro, which was a little bit different. We weren't fancy enough to be used in Pro Tools no, in 2007. No. And that makes it even funnier because we're talking about LimeWire and there's, you know, you can talk about Napster and all that stuff in there. So he probably just downloaded it from LimeWire. Yeah, he downloaded. An illegal, unregistered copy of Fruity Loops. And made a number one hit song, and he did it for free. (laughs) And so (laughs) that's (laughs) what makes this story crazy, is just how DIY it is and how it went to number one. It was the first song to do that. So all of this self-promotion, it just cracks me up. Like the way that he just stumbled into everything and was like, I'm just going to do it, including naming your song a different song than what it actually was, And he didn't care. He just did everything shamelessly, and that's the story. I've got two other pieces to the story, Pat. These are two of the pieces that really help this song to go to number one. And the first is, remember that we said that Snap Music was also referred to as ringtone rap? In the mid-2000s, you could purchase these little snippets of songs or ringtones for your phone. Most people had crappy flip phones and the speakers were garbage. Songs that worked well as ringtones were songs that sounded like Crank That. Mm-hmm. Songs that could actually cut through on a crappy sounding phone. And so in 2007, ringtones had made about $700 million in revenue. And Crank That made up millions of those downloads just in that year. That song was a really popular ringtone And that's what made snap music or ringtone rap such a cool kind of niche thing and really popular because kids could get songs like Crank That for their phones. So every time their friends called, you would just hear those snaps. The production of this song is so minimal, right? It's mostly a beat. (laughs) So it would cut through really well on your phone because the beat is so minimal. And then the only other real tone is that steel drum sound. Mm -hmm. So that's what made this song so good as a ringtone. That helped with sales, right? Selling a ringtone is selling a track. Yeah. So the second part is what I think might be the most important thing to take it over the top. And that is, when it comes down to it, Crank That is just a classic instructional dance craze like we've been enjoying forever. Much like the Twist or the Macarena or the Cupid Shuffle. But what made this dance hit differently was a new video site called YouTube. In 2007, YouTube was still in its early days, and no artist had quite used YouTube in this way before. So, coupling this song with a dance craze driven by a grassroots network of young people performing the dance on this brand new video site, it made the song unstoppable. Because if you went on YouTube and you typed in Crank That in 2007, especially late 2007, You could find yourself in a rabbit hole of all of these kids making videos of Crank That Soldier Boy Dance. And then the music video is so funny because the music video is essentially like them recreating the viral sensation of what this song is. Dude, that's what he did. He just piggybacked on himself. That's what he was doing on all these sites. He was going from one site and then promoting his other site and then promoting it Again, so he would go from SoundClick and he would promote his SoundClick to MySpace. And then on MySpace, he would do MySpace to YouTube. And then he would go YouTube all the way back to SoundClick. So it would be like he was just in this circle. But then to Billboard, then to iTunes. So then yeah. to, you know, album sales. You know what vision I'm having right now? How many kids they bought the ringtone, and every time that ringtone went on, them and everybody else around them started doing the dance. Yes. Totally. Yeah. They absolutely did. From their pocket. Yes, from their pocket. It was really the beginning of an era, and he started this trend. Nobody had coupled their song with a dance craze on YouTube before. There were definitely other video sites, and there were places where people were watching instructional dance videos, but because of the success of YouTube, those videos had so many plays. By early 2008, the video had about 27 million views, which at the time was... A really big number. I watched the show Atlanta. It's a show that Donald Glover created, a.k.a. Childish Gambino. In the last season, there was an episode where there was a murderer on the loose who was hunting down anyone who'd ever created a Crank That dance instructional video. That is such a, a specific thing. And one of the characters who plays a rapper named Paperboy in the show... Finds out that there's still a video of him online doing the Crank That dance. And he's afraid he's going to be murdered for it. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great episode. If anybody's never watched the show Atlanta, it's one of my favorite shows in recent years. It's just so funny. Like when that show started, all of the actors on the show were like mildly popular. Now all of them are just household names. Now that we've followed the narrative a little bit, let's talk about the song sonically and how we feel about it. Well, I mean, the first thing I think of is about how it would look on the screen on FL Studio. (laughs) Because to be very honest, it is so simple that we could easily look to recreate it. I can absolutely see each part being utilized on the screen. And one of the things that I even hear with his vocal is how he's singing over each vocal part. It's really funny. You can hear every time the O comes in, you can hear it like cut in. He plopped it right down on the track. And it like cuts in from the other vocal. It's, it's very funny, especially when you listen to it on headphones. You can really hear the DIY quality of it. This was a song that he made viral on his own. They didn't change the recording when they released it on the big record label. They were just like, whatever you're doing, you're doing it right. We're just going to release the song as you released it before, which is really funny. They did re-record, I think, other songs for the album, but they didn't re-record this one specifically. Because it's got its own thing. You can't. You can't change it. You can't stop it. It's got a life of its own. And he also had other hits too, like outside of this song, which I didn't really know that until I saw it later on. I was like, oh my gosh, did he have another number one hit song? I'm not really sure. Keep going. I'll, I'll look it up. The amount of drama that he loves that surrounds the way that he did everything, all the feuds that he had with all these different artists... He was, like, 16 or 17 having a feud with, like, Ice-T and, and like, huge artists who were, like, didn't necessarily like what he was doing with the internet. There were other artists who really liked what he was doing, including, I think, 50 Cent and, like, maybe Kanye. And he was relentless in creating these dramatic things. That was part of it. That was part of the reason that people consistently talked about him, because he always had something going on. So just... From your last question, Mm -hmm. Kiss Me Through the Phone was his other high-charting single. It went to number three. Number three, okay. But it didn't get to number one. And then Turn My Swag On went to number 19. Yeah, they're both big songs. songs. Yeah. Anything else about this song? I'm thinking of one of the biggest social media platforms is TikTok. And the reason that TikTok started was as a dance platform it was for people to put their videos up of them dancing. Well, that's how the platform took off. Yes, that is how the platform took off. So thinking about how he did that back then and how we fast forward however many years. So 17 years ago, he's doing this thing that essentially feels like it could be happening today. Yes. That's how forward thinking and far ahead he was. And also, when I think about the careers of other popular artists who use the internet in a similar way to him, like Nicki Minaj, like Lil Nas X, they essentially, like, use the same playbook as him. Mm -hmm. They're using the internet as their way to get themselves as part of the conversation. I love the minimalist quality of the song and, like, its hypnotic groove. I think it's really clever. There's something... There's something that gets you hooked in it, and you just keep. It's wanting just to one sound that's doing it. It's just the steel drum. It's one loop. I also love the uh, growing vocal line when they're like, "Oh, it's so fun. That's like such an easy way to create some tension and release for the song. Without that, I think the song would be too boring." But with that, it helps us grow different sections. The thing that I kind of dislike about it, which is really just a taste thing, it's not necessarily anything wrong with the song, is I don't really like any instructional dances or like line dances or anything like that. Like personally, yeah. I understand that line dances and instructional dances are an important part of our collective music histories. But just personally, like I know that in 2007, I probably. Couldn't stand this song because of just the whole like instructional dance vibe behind it. At the same time, I still thought it was like a lot of fun, because it was. We were in college at the time, so a lot of younger kids were really into it. We were camp counselors. So Oh, we heard it all the time. It was everywhere. Kids were doing the dance and just having fun with it, which is a real positive. That's what's great about the song was the viral nature of it. But personally, I just like I cringe a little bit every time like an instructional dance comes along just a personal taste the song itself too is very juvenile like lyrically mm-hmm. but that's another thing can i really hold that against a 15 year old no, kid can't. for writing juvenile lyrics like <laughs> you can't. it kind of adds to like the almost punk quality of the song right mm-hmm. i did this all myself in my bedroom whatever <laughs> like who cares but going back to a thing that i do really like about it is i think it's a great party song i think there's something about it with the growing vocal line with the production of the beat with the buzz that it creates. I really like it as a party song and its influence on snap music and just the influence of snap music in general on like party music and hip hop and even like electronic music. I think that this song in particular, just such a big influence on SoundCloud rap, on all the music that comes after it, that you can't help but every time you hear it, feel this like pull of influence that it's created years and years later. Well, anything else, Pat, that you want to share about this song? This one was really an enlightening story because I didn't realize how much surrounded it, but I didn't realize how much of an influence he had on creating this blueprint. When I think about the time when he made this music and what he was doing and how long it took for streaming to become an important part of our music listening. I mean, maybe like eight years, 10 years for Mm -hmm. everybody to really catch on from that moment. It's a big deal because he was doing stuff that really like turned the industry on its head. No, I'm not going to do what you want. You're going to do what I want. And that like DIY mentality is essentially what we do as creators now, in all industries, not just music. You can create anything you want now from the comfort of your own home. You can be your own distributor. Of course, this creates a lot of other problems with the amount of content and the amount of noise on the internet, Mm -hmm. but we have the tools at our fingertips to create and distribute art or anything that we wanna share with the world. So I think maybe we should end this episode in the words of Soldier Boy himself, That's a great idea, Sean. He said, quote, I motherfucking showed you how to get famous from your bedroom on the internet. They'll talk about it in the history books later. Before we end our episode the same way we always do with what are you consuming this week, make sure you subscribe to us wherever you're listening right now. If it's on Apple or Spotify or wherever, and you can follow us at Pat and Sean Kelly on Instagram and TikTok, and follow the podcast at Songs We Hate to Love on Instagram. So, Pat, this week I'll go first. It's a brand new show, it's on Apple TV, and it's based on a book series called The Silo Book Series. I did read the first novel. The first one's called Wool. It's a sci fi series, post apocalyptic. The world's poisonous, everybody has to live underground in this huge silo. The first two episodes just came out on Apple TV. I really liked the book. I haven't read the other two. I'm probably going to now that they're making it a series. But I highly recommend it if you like post-apocalyptic style sci-fi. Based on these first two episodes, it's already a super well-made, well-crafted show. It looks great. Mm -hmm. The idea of this big underground silo that just has these swirling stairs at the middle and tons and tons of people. It's really a fun show. I highly recommend it. It's on Apple TV. It's called Silo. One of the things that's been on my mind with all the AI lately is as a DJ, because, you know, you and I do weddings and events for a living. So I've been thinking a lot about how the AI side of being a DJ is going to change. I looked up videos. on like, oh, people are so worried about stuff. But when I type stuff into chat GPT, it's never what I actually want. Like, I'll type in, you know, give me some songs that have similar chord progressions that you could play over top of each other or whatever, and it'll give me a list of songs, and I'm like, yeah, that doesn't really work, though. I've tried that, too. The chord progression thing, they don't... It's pretty weak right now. I was actually really surprised. I well, thought they'd be able to spot songs like that, but they didn't. And because of the availability of having technology like stems on serato where you can just do it on the fly you can just create an acapella track essentially and an instrumental track for another song so you can see if they work together and even asking for a great wedding playlist for people who like certain types of music it still doesn't hit it on the on the nose there is still so much subtlety in how we listen to music because there is so much of it out there Right, there's still way too many dynamics between things that people like and things that work in certain situations. Yeah, but it's funny the AI stuff is so geared toward prompting. You have to be good at creating prompts that oh, yeah. the AI will understand. So I've been talking with one of my friends about this a lot, and it really is going to be people's careers to learn how to prompt. AI correctly in order to get the things that you want out of it. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a tool just like any other tool that we use now, specifically learning how to prompt it well. I've been using one of the art AIs to create yeah. visual art, and it's an app called Wonder. It's really funny. Like First of all, it's so messed up because it like defaults to certain types of visuals especially like, it's mostly white people. If you like type in just a person, a woman, a man, doing whatever, it defaults to white people first, which is of course like one of the big problems yeah. about it. Because AI is just a reflection of how humans create the tool, right? Another thing is is like some things look really jumbled like hands and faces and they can't really put text in there which is a really funny thing. like Weird. Just this app. I'm not sure about all the other mm-hmm. art AI generators, but there's all these little quirks to it that are like, oh, that's weird. That person's like, their eyes and their nose and their mouth don't quite look like, like a normal <laughs> photo of a person's face. Yeah. So it's just like all these weird quirks that are in these AI and also the kind of prejudice that humans already put into the application to start with. You can see who made it. But anyway, it's, it's a fascinating world that we have only just started. Yep. With that, we're going to end today's episode. Thanks again so much for tuning in. We'll see you guys next time. Peace.